Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. Let's get excited, man. I'm so pumped to be with you guys. Second service, so you get the one where I'm just a little more loose and like things could come out of my mouth that I'll regret. <laughs> it's the one that generally doesn't make it online. I, it, it's the second service. So thanks for being here. We're going to dive into God's word almost immediately here as we just look at the example of Jesus Christ and how he's the goat. If you've been listening on like the podcast or on our YouTube channel, or if you're doing that right now, welcome. But for you guys in the room, we're going to have a good time today, all right? See, we're exploring the fact that Jesus is the greatest of all time, and we get to be invited into that greatness. He invites us to follow him as disciples. See, Christian pretty much just means little Christ. So if Jesus is the greatest of all time, then we get to be at least kind of okay, right? Yurisov, who knows what his first name is? Yurisov Pelican, he's a, he's a historian at Yale. Very influential, kind of a big deal. Household name, really, in historians. He says, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? That's a whole lot of words, Ivy League words, that Jesus is the goat. He's the greatest of all time. And it's not popular, this sentiment that this historian saying, but the sentiment is still true. So much of our world is defined by the influence and by the greatness of Jesus Christ. He's the goat. That's all there is to it. Greatest of all time. No one in history influences our present or our future or our eternity quite like Jesus, the son of God, right? Amen. Amen. When we look to Jesus, we see greatness that we want to share in. But the reality is I think we want to share in any type of greatness that we see. See, to a lesser degree, our friends, other people, we want to share in their greatness. We find ourselves stirred when we see greatness, inspired, and there's a desire that grips us and gets our blood pumping when we see greatness enacted. When I look at Steph Curry, which, you know, LeBron who? I hate, I hate to say it. I love the king, but LeBron who? LeBron who? Steph Curry just... It's amazing. You can boo all you want. Points don't lie. <laughs> when I look at Steph Curry play, I wish I could shoot three-pointers. I kind of wish I could shoot free throws. I, I, when I look at him, I want to play basketball well. When I look at Tom Brady, I wish I could play quarterback. When I looked at Paul Callahan and Pastor Randy Green helping me on my breaks yesterday on a hot day on, a, on a, like just a sun-drenched driveway, I wish I could sling wrenches like those guys, mostly Paul. When I say help, he did my breaks. Like I was inspired by the greatness of seeing him work there. I wish I could do it. When I witnessed greatness, I wish that I could either accomplish it or that I could, say, I, could, I could share in it, approach that. When I see it from athletes, my friends, my peers, but my Savior, I really wish I could share in that greatness. And the good news is I can. 
I'll never be a mechanic like Paul Callahan. I'll never sell houses like Paul Callahan. I'll never shoot three, uh, you know, the basketballs <laughs> like Steph Curry. I'll never do those things, but I can imitate Jesus in the best of my ability. And I think we all want to be great. In fact, it's kind of one of those things that reminds me of my time in high school. I was a little academically gifted, might have been a bit of a nerd. But senior year, I kind of phoned it in. Anybody else phoned it in senior year? You don't have to show of hands, but if you do, I know you're honest. Right? Senior year, it just wasn't it, man. It wasn't a vibe. Did not enjoy it. Did not enjoy it. Did not put the time in to really finish high school strong. And at Airport High School, my alma mater, there was a big, like every school, a senior graduation kind of thing. Not the graduation yet, but just where you get all the awards and the scholarships and we talk about how good all these kids have done at life at its easiest setting. And I remember sitting there watching all my friends that I aspire to be like go up for so many different awards and scholarships. And I'm just like, okay, I guess I'll just sit here. And I got one award where my closest friends got like five or six. Like you just kept calling their names. I'm like, wow, I really fell behind. And a teacher of mine, his name was Bob Durrett. We called him Captain D. He was our Latin teacher. Yeah, thanks for laughing at that. I think there's something inherently cool about calling him Captain D. It was just my childhood, guys. Don't worry about it. He said, and it was so good I had to write it down. I kept it in my wallet for a long time. And then eventually when in college, you know, like I got there eventually, <laughs> I put it on my computer screen for, for a long time. He said, there's a kind of ache when your effort and results do not match your ability. And for the ambitious and the capable, no worse word exists than mediocre. None of us want to live a mediocre life. All of us want to grasp at greatness. And when we look at Jesus as the goat, we're invited to grasp onto his. His greatness and his glory is something we're invited to through scripture to share in. And I hope we get to do that today. See, unlike me, Jesus never played down to his competition. He never settled for any standard lower than the greatest and any standard lower than God's holy standard. But how he left his mark, how he measured and accomplished greatness was so upside down, so inside out, that it's easy for us to miss it. It's counter to our culture, to our instincts, to our supposed wisdom. It's counter to all of our desires that come just naturally to us. And because of that, we can miss greatness. We can miss the plot. See, this series is about Christ's example is the greatest, and maybe, just maybe, if we follow Jesus' example enough, we might live a life that is great. Last week, we talked about Jesus being the greatest follower of all time. Uh, Pastor Dustin said he had extreme followership, a kind of obedience to God that was just full of trust. In fact, a friend of Journeys who taught the residency class uh, and some members of staff a few, few months ago about prayer is Pastor Kevin Queen from Crosspoint in Nashville. And he had something to say about this in a message similar that just really summarizes a lot of what we learned last week that'll catch you right up. When it comes to greatness, the question isn't how well you lead, but how closely you will follow. What a powerful word, especially in a world that's obsessed with dynamic leaders, dynamic people who take charge and are bold and loud. Instead, focusing not just on how we lead, but how we follow. And we're gonna build on that powerful word Jesus' brand of greatness invites us to follow. What are we following to do? Well, this week we're going to explore how Jesus 
both God and man, Jesus, the greatest of all time, Jesus, the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, was also the greatest servant of all time. And it's a weird dichotomy to think of God who has all this authority as Jesus on the earth who places himself in the role of servant. So we've got to define servant for our context. One who removes obstacles for another or performs labor for another. Someone who makes the path easier. Don't get confused. Jesus doesn't make paths easy, but he certainly makes them easier. And don't get confused about this. Just because Jesus was the greatest servant of all time doesn't mean that he didn't exist with full authority. He had full power, and yet he was the greatest servant of all time, and it blows my mind how Jesus could walk this earth with so much power and be so humble. Jesus shows us how it makes sense to exist with all this power and still serve by showing us two things, and that's what we're going to talk about today, his purpose and his posture. And we share in that purpose and posture. In fact, if you could say it with me, purpose and posture. To understand Jesus' approach to serving others when he's so high above us and understand what we should do, we got to look at Jesus' exact words on the issue and what he says his heart is for that be in his posture. And my friends, when we see his purpose and his posture, when we see and hear what he thinks about service, I think our purpose and posture might just change. If you look in your Bible apps or just on the screen, we're going to be looking at Matthew 20, starting in verse 20. And right before that, Jesus has told his disciples and the people gathered about his death and his coming resurrection. It's a weird time to have this conversation that we're about to engage in. But the disciples have just got some bad news and some really good news all at once. And I think it's interesting the way it starts, so we'll jump right in. Verse 20 says, Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request, he asked. She replied, In your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. I want to pause there and just say, isn't it amazing how moms can speak up for their kids? <laughs> like, I've heard that this has happened in workforces lately, that moms somehow get involved in, like, the recruitment process. Like, a mom called a supervisor after an interview. <laughs> like, your mom can be your character reference. <laughs> oh, let me, little Jimmy's great. Little Jimmy, he's 40 years old. <laughs> and it just blows my mind that here is the mom of James and John saying, Jesus, man, really sad about that crucifixion thing. Can my boys get a promotion? <laughs> I mean, I see you're like doing stuff with Peter and you got plans for all that. What about the sons of thunder? Come on, <laughs> show them some love. And Jesus, way more patient than I would be, way more gentle, answered by saying to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink. And of course, James and John, because now they're on the spot, said, oh, oh, oh yes, they replied, we are able. Then in verse 23, Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. I want you to realize something. This was an observation I heard from Pastor Kevin Queen, actually. And it, it, it blew my mind because I, I knew it, but I didn't know it. 
The mom didn't understand about the kingdom of heaven that was to come. She only knew that Jerusalem was the place where the Jews were. And she only knew that they were subjugated by the Romans. And she thought, like so many other Jews thought, that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was there to liberate them, that he would set up a new kingdom, and that he would sit on a throne in Jerusalem. She really believed that. So when she asked about Jerusalem, she wasn't thinking about, well, after the death and after the resurrection or anything. She was thinking just in general. What roles can my sons have? What promotion can they have? How can they be in your cabinet when you come into your full power? So when Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for, he knows that on his left and his right in Jerusalem, there won't be thrones, there'll be crosses. They're not seats for his cabinet. They're seats for criminals to die and be crucified. Just made me think that moms, you might be want to ask, watch out what you ask for. But the reality is, in this moment where the mom and James and John are pursuing a better step on the ladder, a higher approach, a higher position, Jesus is saying, be careful what you wish for. And he continues to give us both his purpose for himself and his purpose for each and every one of us, starting in verse 24. When the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, you know the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first among you must become your slave. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right here, Jesus declares his purpose. And he does so not in a vacuum, but in a way so that the disciples and us 2,000 years later can understand ours. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus didn't come to be served on earth, even though he should have been. His greatness, as we measure in his example, is defined here. He could have took power. He could have established a kingdom that would have fallen and risen as all dynasties do, but instead he looked at something eternal in the kingdom of heaven. And he looked at something that was so upside down, so, so fully Jesus that people just didn't understand. He served, he ransomed, and he freed those who didn't deserve it. And it's something that echoes into eternity. Instead of a ruler who says me first, he said you first. Let me serve you. In fact, one of my favorite authors, Simon Sinek, wrote a book called Leaders Eat Last. It's a great book, good leadership book. Really investigates how in a lot of organizations, especially in the military, you'll see people at high leadership insist to eat last while your enlisted men go through before them. And for those who serve, that's not new to you. You, you know that. And also thank you for your service. But the reality is they do this as a way to build morale and to show that the leader has their back. And if I were in a situation where I could, you know, quite possibly get shot at, it's good to know at least the leader wants me to have a full belly. <laughs> Simon Sinek writes this amazing book. It's about 250 pages. I've, I've loved his books, but the funny thing is everything that he brought when he wrote that book was something that Jesus of Nazareth had brought over 2,000 years prior that the best way to lead is to put others first. 
Jesus says in this passage to, a disciple who are, to his disciples who are trying to climb this ladder, trying to assert some hierarchy, that they're not to be like rulers of the world, that there's no reason to flaunt power, no reason to cheer quite so loud when we win. He even says so clearly that those who want to lead must abandon pride and be a servant, and that the first among these leaders has to become a slave. He doesn't use these words all willy-nilly. Servant is someone that comes into your household, manages a household very much almost like an employee. It's transactional almost. But at a slave here, someone who's been bought. I want you guys to remember something. We've all been bought. We've all been ransomed and we've all been freed, but there's something better that we can serve than what we served before. See, to Jesus, it's the people who put themselves behind others and others ahead of themselves that get a spot at the front of the line. In 2011, the church lost a great man, uh, just a hero to me, Billy Hornsby. Um, he was a guy who actually founded the, the ARC, the Association of Related Churches. And in just the 11 years since he's passed, that, that organization's planted over 1,000 churches, which is amazing. And Billy Hornsby was a minister that you wouldn't have thought he would have been behind such a dynamic organization because Billy Hornsby was about taking you to breakfast, finding out your dream, and helping you accomplish it. Billy Hornsby wasn't about taking credit. He wasn't about big, loud speeches. He was about finding people and helping them accomplish their calling. See, he understood that that's our God-given purpose, to serve others, to build the kingdom of heaven. It's a purpose that we all share. And what if our ambition could be set for our neighbor's success? What if all of our drive wasn't just to push us forward, but to push our neighbors forward, to push people instead of our agenda? And it sounds like a glorious purpose that God is giving us here in this scripture, because it is. It's a purpose that invites us into a greatness that transcends our accomplishments. It transcends just the thing that we can do with our job and our promotion or our family and starts spreading exponentially across the people we have impact with. See, we're called to be a people who serve, not a people who are clamoring and chasing for service. Because when Christians serve, lives are changed. I believe that. I've seen it. When Christians truly serve, the poor are lifted into stability. The abused are brought out of darkness. The addict finds recovery. The tired parent finds rest. The child finds a lifelong friend in Christ. And the elderly find perspective, find hope, and find a way to give their experience to the next generation. And this is our purpose. And I think it would be great if we could see ourselves in this scripture. So can you say this with me? I came not to be served, but to serve. I think a lot of times people come to church and they expect a certain bill of goods and services. And, and don't get me wrong, we're going to like do those things. We're going to take care of your kids. We're going to make sure the air conditioning works at a certain amount. You can come with some expectations, that's fine. But we come to a church expecting some sort of service to us with no expectation of how we're to serve. And not just church, but our lives. We want to see what all we can get out of our life. But the reality is, when it comes to service, when it comes to the purpose that Jesus has for us, it's not about wanting something from you. It's about wanting something for you. It's about an investment that we want to see fulfilled in you. But let's get back to Jesus before I preach a different message. Jesus has all this power. 
but his purpose is to serve. His purpose is to humbly place himself in this way. And the reality is I can't wrap my mind around how he would do it except by his posture. He consistently looks at the world in a very specific way. And in Matthew 11, Jesus gives an invitation. And in this invitation, he states exactly where his heart is, what his posture is. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In this invitation, Jesus calls to us all and he assures us that he should teach us because he's gentle and lowly at heart. That's his posture. Some translations look at that word, those words and call it different things. Some call it humble and gentle or meek and lowly. But I love the English Standard Version here. It's something poetic here and the way this specific choice of word envisions Christ. Because we live in a world that doesn't think much of either of those terms. See, it's usually thought that gentleness is a weakness. And that being lowly, having a low status, to be poor, to be destitute, to be humble in that way, is something inherently lacking in greatness. But here we are with the greatest of all time saying he is gentle and lowly. If the greatest person of all time, the goat of life, was gentle and lowly, it kind of brings us to a place where it's difficult to understand what he means. And he wasn't called gentle and lowly by someone else. You've got to understand, this is something he claimed about his character, about his posture. It's not an insult. He claimed it as a point of pride. So what does gentle and lowly mean in the scripture? Spoiler alert, I'm not that smart. But a guy wrote an amazing book on this. this is, it was, its name is Gentle and Lowly. It's by Dane Ortland. Highly recommend it. And he, he really just, his fingerprints are all over this message. And I just wanted you to know that you can go somewhere, look more into it. And his book came out in 2020 at a time where a lot of pastors were getting very defensive, getting very scared because we're closing church doors. The Rona's happening. Congregations are fighting among themselves. There's politic issues. There's a racial divide. Everybody's got an opinion on something and pastors are having to defend themselves. And out comes Dane Orland with a book telling us to chill because Jesus was very chill. It was very popular and it was also very unpopular. Because the reality is even as a pastor, I don't always like to think of Jesus as super chill because I, if you haven't noticed, am not super chill. I'm not always gentle and lonely. I don't have gentle and lowly, not lonely. Well, sometimes that too, but mostly. Anyway, guys, I can't tell you how much that book convicted me when it came out because I'm doing ministry in a way where it feels like if I'm, inti- if I'm any more gentle, I'm going to get ran over. If I'm any more lowly, I'm going to be like subterranean. It's a dark time in the church. Or it was. Things are coming back nice now. So this, this book kind of teched pastors off. But no one could deny scriptural relevance. So we're going to explore some of this about being gentle and lonely. The first thing is I am gentle. And the Greek translated in this verse is gentle. It occurs only three other times in the New Testament. And every time it's spoken, it's a humble bearing and a gentle countenance. It's an accepting hand of fellowship, an open invitation for others to come, sit at a table and be changed. 
Peter actually references it to the gentle beauty that rests within. Speaking how our inner selves should be more developed than our outer selves. It speaks to a meekness. And people don't like the word meek because the, the world likes to run over people who are meek. But the reality is we're not getting that word right. See, in scripture, Pastor Kevin Monahan, our, our executive pastor, he shared this in our resident training not long ago, that meekness is more of a choice than an attribute, that it's not a warrior who's unable to fight, but instead a warrior who chooses peace. We'll actually learn more about choosing peace later in this series. This gentleness always seems to mean meek, humble, and gentle. So Jesus is not a violent conqueror, but a savior with open arms to embrace and a heart ready to serve. This doesn't mean he won't act in pursuit of justice. The same Jesus whose arms are always open, the same Jesus who is gentle and loving and accepting is the same Jesus who turned tables over. He's the same Jesus who said some of my favorite lines, oh, faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I suffer thee? Seriously, he said it, look it up, it's great. <laughs> Jesus was gentle because he knew what people were handling in their sin and in their suffering. And he invites them because his yoke really is easy and light compared to what they suffer. He was gentle because he understood browbeating wasn't gonna work. He was gentle because his love for you transcends where you might be right now. It doesn't mean he'll keep you where you are right now, but his love always comes first. Mr. Ortland says in his book, the posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Does a posture of gentleness cancel others? No. Does a gentle heart seek retribution in every social media dust up? No. Does a gentle heart seek to accuse and condemn? No. But there are few people unmoved by a gentle heart. The expressed humility that's shown when I'm willing to say you are more important than my view and then I'm willing to serve you so that you may find a better way in this world, a way that leads to your Savior. I just want you guys to remember, in case you didn't know, especially behind your keyboards, that no one has ever been argued into salvation. In the history of the world, it has never happened. No one's ever been browbeaten or badgered or nagged in any meaningful, lasting change. Wives, husbands, is it true? Parents, is it true? When we raise our voice, do we ever get what we want? Certainly not for very long. But the gentle heart of our Savior and his willingness to serve and sacrifice made the only change strong enough to affect our eternity. That's a long change. That's not just doing something because someone yelled long enough. That's not just changing a life because you were told to. That's the kind of change that happens when true grace is extended by a savior who is gentle. The next declaration Jesus makes about his heart is that he's lowly. Often that word's translated just to humble, right? And it's often overlapping with the previous word. But in this way, humble actually, it's not a mistranslation. It's just a word that means two, two different things. And the meaning evoked by humble in the New Testament is also not just about humility, a virtue, which I'm not preaching about today because that's literally what I just preached to you guys about. But 
Pastor Harvey is preaching on an amazing word on humility right now at our Apophaga campus. I encourage you to check it out online today or tomorrow. Consider like, like you got two for one this week. But the humble that we see in the Greek is less about humility in this context and more about a humble state. In fact, Mary's song in Luke 152, it's the exact same word. And it's her song while pregnant with Jesus. And it speaks to the way God exalts and lifts up those who are of humble estate. Or when Paul says not to be haughty, but associate with the lowly in Romans 12, 16. See, the reality is Jesus is literally lowly in this. He's not in an exclusive place. He's not covered in riches. He's not in a place that's unreachable. In fact, Dane Ortland again, says it perfectly. The point in saying Jesus is lowly is that he's accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. See guys, we live in a world where people don't care much for being accessible. If you are a millennial, how often do you answer your phone? How often do you return a voicemail? I don't think I've checked the voicemail properly for a long time. I mean, I, I do it because it's my job, but like if it's a, like a family member, I just text them back like three to six business days later. <laughs> I mean, I am from the generation of people, and I think all of us might be able to admit this, that there's this incredible euphoria, a rush second only to the Holy Spirit when plans get changed or when they get canceled rather. Like, oh my gosh, when, when plans get canceled, I'm just like, thank you, Jesus. I, I just feel faint. I'm like, ooh, that is time I'm gonna nap. I mean, I love it when plans get canceled. I mean, I love being with people. I'm an extrovert. That's fine. But when they don't want me to, that's cool too. I'm okay with it. So I'm not horribly accessible. And I don't know a lot of people, especially in my generation, and, and Lord help the generation coming after, who are very accessible. But Jesus, he's radically accessible. And don't, don't mistake his accessibility as lacking boundaries. Jesus knew the importance of getting away in the morning by himself to seek his father. And we know that Jesus, who also understood the importance of feeding into the disciples and the time he had just with the twelve, and we also know through scripture that Jesus understood the importance of a good nap. So if you ever feel, amen, right? If you're ever feeling less than accessible, take yourself a nap. It's for champs, guys. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for you. When we look at Jesus in the humble posture of his heart, the lowly place he puts himself so that he can meet us where we are, what else can we see but the greatest servant of all time? What else can we see but a God who has come in the guise of his son, fully God, fully man, extending a hand to people who don't deserve it. The idea that I'm like Christ when I offer my time to those of low position kind of attacks my ego, kind of makes me confused because I've always wanted to be exclusive. I've always wanted to be an influencer. My sense of judgment, it's based on me being detached from the low. But Jesus would have us mix He'd have us reach as low as we could. He'd have us stay lowly so people can access us. How do we embrace such an upside view, upside down view of greatness? That I shouldn't be clamoring for a title or position or separation from our exclusive place, but instead put our heart in our posture to be both gentle and lowly. 
I think there's some pretty clear problems about it. If you walk into my office um, at Apopka or here, if you look around, you'll see pictures of my dog. But also, um, you'll find pictures of superheroes. I've always enjoyed the idea of comic books, and I, I like to keep something nerdy around. It makes me feel less threatening. I'm a big dude. And I've read no small number of comic books, and I've watched a lot of superhero movies. I'm going to be honest, I'm getting kind of tired of them. And they've been some of the biggest movies of all time for the last 10 plus years. And I think those superheroes might be why it's so hard to understand this gentle and lowly heart of our Savior. See, we live in a world where our values usually reflect strength. And strength usually occurs in violence. I mean, I love a good violent movie. Like, I love action movies. I'm sorry, guys. I'll repent later. They're great. They're like my favorite. But the reality is, the stories begin with someone punching, and they end with someone punching. There's not a lot of gentleness involved. Things are usually pretty loud, like jet plane loud in my living room, wife getting upset kind of loud. And that's the entertainment that I have. And those are the heroes that I elevated as a kid. The reality is the heroes in my fiction, they don't have the posture of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The heroes in my fiction don't have the posture of the hero that saved the human race. They don't have the posture of the servant king, Jesus Christ. The problem is it goes further than just my fiction and my comic books and my movies. See, the people who give me my news, they don't have this posture, guys. Don't care which news you watch, by the way. The people who often fight for my vote, regardless the color of their pen or their suit, they don't have this posture. Influencers, musicians, actors, athletes, seldom of them have this posture, this posture of being gentle and lowly. And if I were entirely honest, I don't have this posture either. See, maybe that's why we fail to see our Savior in this way. We fail to see our Savior in this way, to recognize his posture, because we want Jesus to look like us sometimes. We want him to look like us and sound like us and to sound like the idea of what a hero should be. See, the Jews expected a conqueror, a rebel, a liberator, and they got a lamb willing to go to slaughter instead. And I thank God that Christ's posture is not my posture. It's not the posture I would have picked. See, I probably would have picked the defensive posture a closed-off posture, a posture unwilling to put others first because I got to get what's good for me and mine. A posture that's so full of fear that I won't get what I need or want or deserve that I'm willing to cut line on anyone else. A posture that's never accessible because I've created no margin, no room in my heart or in my life. But the reality is, guys, we're called because of our purpose to serve, not to be served. We're called to have this posture as it pertains to our heart. A humble posture, a meek posture, a gentle posture, a low posture, a posture of outstretched hands and open arms. And it's beautiful, guys. It's beautiful to look at our Savior and to see him execute this posture, not just in the scripture, but in the way that he works in our lives. 
where Jesus has lowered himself to our level, even now, in order to lift us up out of our sin and our misery. See, Jesus came to serve because he came to save. And our purpose to serve is not just so that we could feel good about ourselves or that a few things could get knocked off of a nonprofit's list or that we could fill a classroom. We serve because it's our purpose and because we don't want anyone to miss out on the salvation that Jesus Christ brings. So as we see one of our purposes in Matthew 11, as we see that we're called to serve and we see that our posture is to be made by modeling Jesus in a way that's gentle and lowly. What's God calling you to do? Or maybe what's God calling you to stop? Can you honestly say that you approach your interactions with a gentle and lowly spirit? Is Jesus reflected in your arguments or are just your arguments reflected in your arguments? Maybe there's a way that you can put other people first. It could be in our community. It could be in our church here. In fact, there'll be opportunities to learn more about every ministry and the ways you could serve at our ministry expo at the end of this month. July 31st, Pastor Dustin's gonna give a dynamite word and we'll have tables out here ready for you to sign up. It's gonna be like an athlete signing day. I hear that we may have baseball caps. I'm excited. But you don't have to wait until the 31st to start thinking about what you can change about your life right now as it pertains to your purpose and your posture. It's real easy to live a hollow purpose. A purpose where you go to work and you come home. It's real easy to live for the weekend. It's real easy to live for a paycheck, but it is so much more rewarding to live for a purpose that Jesus has handed us. Or maybe it's a time that you can change your posture. You can soften your voice. You can open your arms. You can learn that Jesus changed this world with love, with his grace, with service that led to his sacrifice at the cross and then his resurrection, a resurrection that we all get to share in just like the greatness he's inviting us to share in right now. Let me pray for you guys. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you that you sent us, Jesus, the lamb that's the goat, just the greatest of all time. Oh, Lord and Savior that has been gentle with us, who's been accessible, who's been lowly for us, who changes our life not by browbeating, not by loud demand, but instead by the transformation that happens by his grace. That in that gentle and lowly state, he still fights for justice. He still sets captives free. That our gently and lowly savior is still the lion of the tribe of Judah. Lord, I just thank you that Jesus is all these things and more. And I just ask that you continue to conform us to your will, conform us to the image of your son, that we can continue to become more like Jesus each and every week that we're here, each and every week that we're at our jobs and our families. Help us emulate you in hopes that we can share in your greatness. In Jesus' name I pray.
If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible.